Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Ricky Dove. I'm Kirsten Robinson. I'm Steve Hildrew. And I'm Matt Croger. And thanks for joining us for our episode on the wonderful world of resin, being joined by two fantastic Mantic employees who are responsible for producing all those miniatures that we know and love, uh, who are really the hidden faces behind behind the team. We know a, a lot of the more front of house faces, but today we're going to learn a little bit more about them, a little bit more about the process that goes into producing these figures. So thanks for joining us, guys. First of all, would you like to give us a brief introduction to who you are, uh, how you got into wargaming, if you're into wargaming, how long you've been at Mantic and, and what you do, and if you also play war games right now or if it's too much like bringing work home. And we might start with you, Ricky. Well, I'm the production manager for uh, Mantic. I handle everything that we produce in-house, so everything in metal and resin. I got into wargaming as a teenager. Warhammer was my uh, uh, game of choice back then, going to Games Workshop product and all that. And then it kind of spiraled from there, really. I got a job, job working for Games Workshop, and it just became my world <laughs> since that point on. Um, I do still wargame and stuff like that, but it is a little bit like taking stuff home from work when you've been working on some masters all day, basically doing hobby uh, the entire day long. When you come home, you don't necessarily want to straight straight away. But I do still, still play quite a bit. And how long have you been with Mantic now, Ricky? Oh, uh, must be about five and a half years now. Okay, so almost almost half their age, or about half their age. Uh, not not far off. It must be. It is, yeah, it must be about five years now. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So one of the one of the longest standing servants. Um. Yeah. There's a couple. Uh, there's a few more than me, uh, but not many now. Yeah. We, we, we've lost a few, but gained a few more. So yeah. Okay. And so you would have been there for that transition from primarily plastic and metal into the resin as it is now. Um, yes, um, I think that all came about when Ronnie, I, I started working for Mantic in a different role and Ronnie found out what my skill set was and then <laughs> that's where Hartman came from. Okay. All right. And Kirsten, how about yourself? Uh, I started in 1996 with Warhammer Fantasy 5th Edition, the Lizardmen Bretonia box set. I got it for Christmas, built them all on my mum's coffee table. She was very angry. And I've I've done it ever since, really. I've I played fantasy right up until it was killed off. And I started at Mantic two years ago. So I joined for the Vanguard Kickstarter. Myself and one other person pretty much boxed all of those orders up for shipping. Mm-hmm. We went straight from that into the Star Saga Kickstarter. So doing two of those back to back was quite an introduction. So you've really been there. So your position at Mantic was a growth position. I'm getting. I'm guessing a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was was there temping, and I started in October two years ago, and it was oh, can you come back next week? Can you come back next week? Can you come back next week? Uh, right up until the Christmas. 
and finished for Christmas, wasn't expecting to come back. And then the other caster, Bobby, messaged me and said, oh, we've got a vacancy. Uh, we'd like you to apply for it. Great. And the rest is history. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'd done one day in the resin department during the Kickstarter, so I had an idea of what it was like. So I thought, yeah, absolutely. This is, this is the industry that I've always wanted to work in. So leapt at the chance. So it must have been quite weird for you too over the over the pandemic, I guess. You know, with I mean, you know, Ronnie's talked a little bit about how he's um, had employees on an in in and out basis, but as production's been stepping up recently, it must have been uh, quite an intense time. How's it been managing through the the pandemic? It's yeah, it's it's been pretty rough. We had uh, my colleague was shielding for the first month. I was furloughed for the second month. Ronnie's been amazing for keeping everybody separated you know long before the government guidelines came in he'd sent the office staff home and we were all social distancing in in different rooms even so he he took it very seriously and has been very supportive of everybody but we it took a lot of adjustment to get the casting socially distanced because we normally do it in pairs so that kind of slowed us down at a time when everybody was buying models because everybody was stuck at home with nothing to do yeah ricky Mm. and you you manage the production are you saying all the metal and the resin how is it it must have been quite a juggling act trying to keep that production going in the face of that demand right um yes it was actually i mean we normally hold a sort of a buffer amount of stock for for such emergencies etc but with the social distancing and having to get the process to work uh, it, it slowed everything down, which and we were always constantly trying to fight against it. Uh, having less staff in and then being split up made it quite difficult from a production point of view because normally they're all in amongst each other, making every uh, you know making everything more and more efficient so we can get more out. But um, it, 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 we, we managed it in the end. I mean, I, I was there for the entirety of lockdown. Uh, in between Bobby and Kirsten, trying to keep everything, keep the wheels running and the engine running, uh, we managed it though, just about. But now we're playing catch up. Yeah. So, so there's three of you. Is that correct? So there's Ricky, Kirsten, and, and Bobby are the full time st- staff. Primarily, yes. Yes. Um, at the moment, we've had to call in a lot of extra staff um, to cope with the demand. Um, but yes, primarily it's just the three of us. Okay, and for someone, before we jump into some more questions, for so obviously I'm I'm in Australia. Uh, there'd be many people that have never seen Mantic HQ. Can you paint a bit of a picture for us of kind of I guess pre-pandemic? What does it look like? Is it is it one big room? You said you're often on a little bit on top of each other. You know what what's a bit of a, a picture for us of that resin work area. Well, the actual Mantic facility itself is a section of offices, um, a large, large room that's used for the gaming hall and the shop, uh, and then it, it, and then a warehouse uh, bolted onto the back. Uh, Red's expanding and getting another building at the moment as well because the uh, manufacturing side is expanding so much. We need more space, but um, it's actually just—I mean, the resin production itself is just done out of one room. They work within each other, but obviously we've had to split that up with social distancing. Just, just, which has just resulted in everything just slowing down that little bit because of that extra little bit of walking and transferring everything between room and room rather than just handing them to each other. Mm, okay, and and so is there the space to expand if if Mantic keep growing their resin range and the demand keeps growing? 
Um, it, it's an awkward question sometimes. It's one that we um, we discuss sometimes in ops, our operations meetings. Space is becoming an issue for us when mm-hmm. it comes to because we demand is increasing at the moment. Um, so we're trying our best to squeeze it in where we can. Yeah, and I guess it's one of those, from a business perspective, it's one of those hard things to predict, isn't it? Like, will that demand continue or or is it a or is it a coronavirus thing that we're just seeing a peak and then it'll peter out a little bit? Uh, yes, there is that. Um, I mean, a trend with our resin department just seems to keep going upwards. I mean, there hasn't really been much of a lull. I mean, we had our big spike for Vanguard and then ever since then, it's been all hands on deck, really. I think it speaks to the quality of the resin, doesn't it? Because, you know, previously, you know, we know the history of Mantic in terms of how uh, it starts as kind of, a, I suppose, a cheaper alternative to, to, to Warhammer miniatures. But once the resin quality was noted, I think it's been, it's, it's basically demand-based. And I see people who don't necessarily pay play Mantic games buying the miniatures for the quality of them. And I think that's, you know, a real uh, testament to the quality. So I think, I think you're right. I don't think the demand's going to stop. The more you keep producing nice miniatures, <laughs> people are going to want to buy them, right? Yeah, so what we're trying to say is it's your own bloody fault for... For producing good miniatures. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've got a lot of resin miniatures from a uh, from a few companies, and you know, Mantics. Uh, what you guys are producing is is right up there. Like my other favourite is is Shibor, but uh, your your resin is just compared to others, it is just top notch, and, and I love it. I, w- I would buy anything from you guys in resin. That's for sure. Awesome. I'm glad you like. We all know that Mantic started with hard plastic miniatures, uh, and really at that start they were a cheaper alternative to GW. How long is it now that Mantic's been going into resin miniatures? Offhand, I think we've had the facility in three years now. Might be a little bit over that, um, but I think it's three years since we put the facility in itself. There's one of the actual plus points to resin is the initial setup cost isn't very high when you compare it to something like plastic injection molding. That's one of the advantages to it. And what is it that makes that difference? So as as for people that have no idea about the the, the difference between the process, what, what makes it cheaper to set up? Um, it's basically the equipment. In order to do plastic injection molding, you're looking at like a £100,000 machine that's huge, it weighs tonnes, um, the, the moulds themselves weigh a vast, a lot anyway, because they're solid steel blocks. Um, whereas in resin, the actual equipment that you use is there's, there's not much there. There's a vacuum chamber, and that's the only real bit of mechanical equipment that you end up using. Everything else is done by hand when it's bespoke. Cool. So let's you know for the, assume we know nothing because in my case that's probably true. So let's talk about from you know from the moment you receive a concept or like a finished render. Uh, could you talk us through step by step uh, the process for making a resin miniature? How do I end up? Well, I happen to be holding one right now. Um, how how do you get from that concept through to uh, the resin miniature that I've got in my hand? Okay, well, it depends on what level of concept. I mean, um, I will sometimes give feedback on art, um, but it's very difficult for me to give feedback on art. And they go, this is the concept for the piece. Well, until you show me the model, it's very difficult for me to say what I can and can't do with that. Some things stand out immediately, like crazy-ass amounts of flames, etc. Um, so I can feed back on that. But eventually, um, the sculptor will uh, provide me with an STL file, so like a 3D render of the model that I can spin around and uh, have a look at intricately. 
and then I will feed back to him on what is possible and what is not. And then after he's made those changes, I'll also tell him where to split the model, so um, which bits he needs to remove and do a separate components. Uh, and then we will get that 3D printed. Once we've received the print, uh, I will go over it, clean it up. Uh, I will add screws and vents to it um, to allow the resin to flow in the right directions um, and the air to escape. Uh, and then we will make a, a master mold of that. So we'll use a, um, and a more expensive silicon that, produce, that provides us with a more uh, accurate copy of the original. Once, And then we will cast five to ten copies, depending on the demand for said model that's predicted. Um, then each of those models will be intensively cleaned and repaired to make them as accurate to the original as possible. Um, where any defects have come in for the original copying, because obviously any, when you copy anything, you tend to get a little bit of degradation down the line. So, uh, and then <clears throat> once all those are copied up and they're all cleaned and all ready, then they will go into a production mold, uh, which is a bit more pliable silicon. So we can bend it out of the way a little bit more easier. You get There's a slight more, bit more deviation from it, but you get a lot more usage out of the mold because it's more flexible. Uh, whereas the master mold, you might only get up to 10 casts out of it and the mold is no longer any use. Whereas the production molds will go a lot longer because of their flexibility. And as soon as those molds are made, they will go into production and be run until uh, filled with resin until filled with resin and stripped until um, they're no longer any use and they start to degrade too much. Okay. And Kirsten, how, how many casts would you tend to get out of one of those production molds? It really varies according to the piece. So, the simpler shapes, you you might get anything up to sort of 50 uses per mold. If it's some of the more complicated bits, anything you might think of, you know, a, a Hellfane, for example, where there's a lot of cracks and jagged edges and things, the silicon tends to catch in those recesses and it tears. So that's something you have to keep an eye on as the pieces come out. So you might get more like 30 uses out of the more complex ones. Yeah, so it's a pretty significant difference. It can be, yeah. Um, it's something that needs, you, you really have to have an eye for detail as the pieces come out and just check everything. And, you know, like faces under hoods can be a problem. Uh, the edges of armor uh, you have to, to get each piece out, and this is something that uh, my colleagues do very, very well when they are stripping the moulds. Just check each piece, at, you know, because they get sorted into tubs. And that's really one of the most important stages of the whole process, in my opinion. Mm, and so, so it sounds quite. And well, one, what's a simpler? What's an example of a simpler piece where you might get those fifty moulds? But and, and it also sounds quite laborious. Each each mould and and removing it and making sure it's okay. Yeah, I mean the simpler pieces. You know, the smaller infantry, for example, they pop out fairly simply. Um, anything where you've got a sprue of weapons, for example arms or swords that just slide out of the molds uh, are quite easy to do. <clears throat> um, it's You never know, though. Sometimes it will catch in places you don't expect, but it's a very 
you, you have to keep on the ball with it and check as we get such high quality sculpts from the sculptors and then Ricky does such an amazing job with cleaning all the pieces and getting them as good as they can possibly be from the masters by the time we get the molds to cast them we don't want to lose any of the work that they've put into the process up to that point yeah so you for those who are maybe not that experienced with it or just uh, you know use whatever they get what do you think the benefits of resin are over materials like you know hard plastic we've seen a lot of decent hard plastic come out recently from mantic or even pvc or, or the original standby of metal what do you think the benefits of resin are i mean i i'm not particularly uh, a fan of the metal myself it's you know we've all if you've been in the hobby long enough you've built metal models they're a bit of a pain they're heavy they the metal shrinks a little bit as it cools which is inevitable because you're casting it at a very high temperature so you inevitably lose a bit of the detail on everything that you cast resin is much sharper and much better for keeping the detail and then it's it's much lighter it's easier to work with it sticks together better we can also produce it in smaller amounts than say plastic now, you can't really make plastic molds for something that you want 100, even 500 of. But resin, it's much simpler to create those silicon molds, run off a limited edition, like the Hellboy stuff, for example. You couldn't do that in plastic. Ricky, it's not the resin um, we've seen a bit. It's not the safest of materials. So for people that print at home have to take lots of precautions and things. So I assume your process has to be pretty slick and it has to be pretty well run for everyone to protect themselves. Yes, indeed. Uh, resin is not a pleasant material. Once it is cast, it is generally quite inert. So once it's been mixed together, it's actually much more volatile when it's in its raw states. Um, so the guys in casting do have to wear respirators while they're at work. Uh, and the, the room is extracted and it's also air conditioned as well because resin will only really operate at certain temperatures. It doesn't like being too cold and it doesn't like being too hot. So th th there's a lot of tweaking with it. But when you're working with it at home, sanding, you should be careful because the, the material is like it, it, it's inert. So it's not toxic or anything, but it is it's not, not organic so it, it, your body won't break it down so if you're breathing in a resin dust and stuff like that that's not good for you because your body won't be able to process it or get rid of it or anything so it's always good to be careful if you're sanding resin particularly just because of the small particulates you should do it in a well-ventilated area wear a, a dust mask or something like that but unless you're doing large quantities of it um it, it shouldn't be too much of a problem but obviously, in our production, when we're doing ours, uh, we're obviously dealing with vast quantities of it. So we do have to be very careful with what we're doing. So it's fair to say, you know, the quality is outstanding. You know, it's really, really uh, very, very impressive. So what kind of volumes are you up to producing now with the equipment that you've got? Are, are you, are, you know, I know, I know with the Armada launch, you guys are really stacked and you're running kind of double shifts. Uh, uh, are, are you max capacity? Kind of what volumes are you producing? Um, we have definitely exceeded our maximum capacity, um, hence uh, why we are taking on extra staff and supplementing the supplementing the, the team uh, and adding 
uh, an extra shift. Um, we're actually also adding a new process in and um, doing a bit of R&D on getting a new system, which would speed up the process a, a lot, sort of um, getting some more machinery involved into it and making more of a production line because we have exceeded our capacity at present, um, especially with um, Armada on the horizon. So in terms of if we put numbers on that, kind of what do you think Armada on top of everything else has done? Has it has it doubled what you were doing before? Is it another 20%? Like what? how, how much of an expansion are we talking that you've had to go through? Um, we've had to double production wow. in order to meet. But it, it, there's a couple of different factors there. It's a time frame coupled with the volume um, is the thing because we obviously have other new releases and stuff and other replenishing the main range. And so that also has to be done at the same time. And then also a large volume of quite high, you know, high definition. Uh, so it, it, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a challenge, but we, we, everything seems to be coming in and falling into place at the moment. Yeah, and is is there a big difference when you're casting between something like because obviously the ships are on average quite a different model to something like a twenty eight mil miniature. Does does that change the process much? Uh, it changes it ever so slightly uh, in that because of the way that the ships are, we're able to um, open cast them um, or flat cast it, depending on what terminology you want to use, um, which means instead of having a well structure that you pour into and everything feeds down, you can pour directly into the bottom of the model. Um, so that saves us some time because um, it's just a little bit easier to cast that way. But then... You still have to cast all the ancillary bits and stuff like that exactly how you would do it to a figure anyway. So it, it's not that different. And the only difference would be that it's a large volume and they are really quite detailed. We've, it's already been answered about working with resident at home and protecting yourself with a with a mask uh, and in a well ventilated area. W- what about other things involved with resin? So if we find gaps in the in the resin when we're making miniatures, and I know you're still a bit of a kings of war hobbyist yourself, Kirsten, how do you recommend that we fill them? Is there a good technique for reforming resin for for custom builds, and 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 what about those gaps? Uh, or what's the best way to to tidy them up? Well. I mean, any sort of modeling putty is always handy. You know, I, I've always got some green stuff and, and things like that on hand. It's very easy to heat it up with a bit of hot water or a hairdryer or something. You know, if you've got something that's a little bit bent and that leaves a gap, that's very, very easy to fix. Uh, if it's small enough, you know, a bit of super glue, you can just coat that over any gap you have and smooth it off a little bit but it's it's very easy to work with particularly for conversions i've built a number of ludicrous things out of scraps it's uh you you just couldn't do with with metal for example it's one of my favorite things at the mantic open day matt you won't know this because you're uh, on the other side of the world but at the Mantic Open Day, when we were still allowed to see other humans, there was always uh, a big bucket of miscasts. And it was always like a frantic rummage to try and find the bits that you wanted to make things. And there was always a um, Mark Cunningham was a terrible beast. He'd literally sit there and just buy hundreds of pounds worth of miscasts. And they're like 50p. Uh, so he could then go and kit bash them into crazy things. And uh, yeah, it's always a 
a fun thing to do, I think. so. Uh, yeah, I have heard stories of over that bucket. So it, it is the most popular part of the open day. I keep telling <laughs> Ronnie that for the open days, the casting department are going to start taking up the whole space and pushing everyone else outside because we get these bins, as Steve says, of miscasts and people will spend all day. We'll get people who come in first thing in the morning, spend an hour rummaging through the boxes, and then they'll be back four more times. (laughs) (laughs) Every conceivable piece, even if they can't think of a use for it, is, oh, well, that looks cool. Oh, we'll take that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to shake for you. This is... is... That's my box of miscasts stuff I got <laughs> the last open day. What was annoying is that as your process has improved, there's been less miscasts. So uh, maybe you could be a little bit more slipshod for the next open day, please. That would be good. Well, I actually did have a, a question around that. What what kind of percentage are we looking at turn out at, as miscasts? Well, I mean, we're trying to get that number down as low as possible. Uh, but you inevitably get some because the silicon molds degrade over time. So as we've mentioned, they've got a limited lifespan. So you will inevitably get miscasts of everything pretty much because that's the inevitable result of the mold dying. Okay. So but, they tend to come towards the end of the life of the mold rather than at the at the beginning towards the end. The, yes. the primary miscast is towards the end of the life of the mold. Ideally, yes. So we have, you know, we're, fairly careful in in the way the molds are cut and they are held together as we cast into them with boards and elastic bands so that prevents slippage and eliminate mold lines as much as possible so that's just a matter of being careful as i'm casting into them when you prep the molds put it in the tank pour the resin you know you can eliminate a lot of errors there but as yeah, you do get the miscasts at the end of the molds, and that's something that you can't avoid. And that's where the the person stripping the mold needs to be really on the ball and keep an eye on pieces. So we put a line through a well when it is looking a bit dodgy, so that I know that it's becoming a problem, and the stripping person knows that it's becoming a problem, and then we cross it off entirely once it has passed that point really we can imagine with you know with the wild success of the armada launch that you're entering a pretty challenging time but what's exciting to you guys as as kind of resin producers and casters looking into mantic's future what what are you looking forward to for me it's the the quality of the resin i when i joined mantic as as a temp i must say i i still had that opinion of mantic as making the cheap alternatives and when i saw those vanguard resins i was absolutely blown away the abbess in particular i think everything about that model the pose the armor the details are just beautiful and that was something that i really had to see more of and even just in the two years that i've been here the quality is still coming on leaps and bounds I think, you know, every hard plastic release is better than the last one. The resins are coming out with all kinds of interesting creatures. You know, we've had the Phoenix and the Hellfane and things like that. And I really think it's just 
the most exciting time to be at the company. Uh, Armada, I've been very excited about all year. I was lucky enough to be involved in some of the rules and scenario writing and the playtesting. So I've had to keep silent about that all year. That's been very difficult. So I can't wait to just get all those ships cast. It, it's going to be a very, very big uh, challenge to get it all done and done on time. But that's a challenge that I'm really looking forward to running with for the next couple of months. Dead said, I think that is the best kept secret that Mantic has ever had, the Amada launch. I don't think really anyone saw it coming. I did because somebody mentioned boats about three months ago to Ronnie in an interview and he went, hmm, boats, interesting in his kind of way. And I was like that. There's a game coming, I can tell you. Yeah. No one else spends all day trawling the internet for sounds of Ronnie's voice, though, Steve, like you, just to listen to. <laughs> it's just me. Yeah. Anyway, he is well known for his subtlety. Yeah. He's uh, terrible. What, what about for you, um, Ricky, in terms of what's exciting to you looking into the future? Well, it kind of echoes basically what um, Kirsten was saying, really. Um, I mean, the, the popularity just keeps growing. Um, the department keeps expanding. Um, so, and well, it's part of what I enjoy about my job is actually the challenge presented by each new model. Um, so uh, I, I try not to compromise the sculptor's vision as much as I, as I can. Um, obviously, I can't make... I can't make certain things just because it's not cost effective or it's not not practical for production purposes. But I always try and recreate what they've um, what they've envisioned as best as I can. Um, and so yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to all the new challenges that seem to be thrown at us at the moment. And like I said, it just keeps getting more and more popular with more and more, uh, you know, I'm feeding more and more areas of Mantic, um, whether it's Dead Zone or whether it's Kings of War or. Any of, the, any of these areas of the business, we're feeding them all now with resin. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to it just uh, getting bigger and better, really. Give me a – and, uh, I mean, probably the appropriate description in that bit there, Ricky, was thrown at you. <laughs> um, give, give me an inside tip. Are we going to see worm riders in resin anytime soon? You know, I would love to because I hate them in metal. It's when I find time in my schedule to, to go back and rework them into, into resin. Um, the the um, Worm Rider Centurion is by far much better than the, the Worm Riders, just purely from a model. It's just purely from a modeling point of view as well. I mean, if, if I don't know if any of you have put together any of those Worm Riders uh, in metal, but I'm sure you could probably, if you threw it at someone, it would cause a lot of damage. It's <laughs> horror stories. Well, plus, actually, if you do that, they might get some decent rules, and then people would take them. <laughs> so it's a win-win, and you know. Yeah. yeah, see, that's that, that. I find that really interesting about the time thing too, Ricky, because I had always assumed that that must be a, a stock of metal or the moulds of metal haven't run out yet. But some of it is also just about the time to recreate them in resin. Uh, yeah, because you've got to go back to the original. Uh, and then basically do a chunk of the work again. So they all need remolding, restarting again. Uh, and that process for a single model can take, you know, a, a week and a half to do the basic prep work for it. Oh, wow. And that's before things. So it, it, and that's down to curing times for silicons, uh, um, cast, uh, the casting time just purely for the resin as well. So it, it can take uh, up to two days just to cast the submasters and et cetera up because uh, it takes 
45 minutes for our resin to cure. So you can only actually make so many copies in a day. Um, and if you've only got one copy in the master mold, you can only make so, so many, so many copies in the given time. Um, so it, like I say, it is a lengthy process. And that's predominantly where your cost comes in with resin is more in labor and time because the material itself is relatively cheap, um, but it's a time consuming and uh, labor intensive process. Yeah. Okay. And so, how do how would Mantic then make a decision on something that is currently in metal transitioning towards re- resin? Because I guess there's variables like the worm riders. I wouldn't buy them at the moment because of the horror stories in in metal. But I would absolutely pick some up if they were in resin. So I guess sales data sometimes isn't enough. Do you know how they pick what goes to resin from metal or not? Or um, it's is a multi-pronged kind of thing because it will be fed back from um, sort of community feedback and then it will be sales feedback and then production scheduling. Um, so it, it's kind of a mishmash of a discussion or an animated discussion between different departments on what, what one's doing when. Because obviously um, sales marketing would like everything done yesterday. Bloody <laughs> uh, <where laughs> marketing, eh? Yeah, seriously. Line in production we, have to have to yeah, fight back and be a bit like no because we have to make it. <laughs> so what we're saying is that production do the real work around here and marketing is just sitting around demanding things. Is that is that what we're what we're saying here? Just uh, just driving a wedge between departments. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, joking. Yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> well, I'll say that. Up. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Moving very very swiftly onwards. Yeah. Um, We've, so we've done some shows on 3D printing uh, recently on countercharge, you know, because there's a, an upswell of support with this technology gets cheaper and more adoptable at home. Obviously, 3D printing resin at home is, is quite a different process, a very different process. Um, but do you see home printing as a threat to the industry at all? Um, I've been asked this quite a lot. And from looking into the entire process, because um, we had to do a little bit of research on it because it was one of the aspects we were thinking of bringing in-house um i at present don't see it as a threat at all really um there's a lot of effort that has to go into printing at home and people think it's just like plug and play and it's really not that kind of that kind of deal you've got a lot of prep time to get it to print exactly right you've got to have quite an expensive level printer if you want the level of detail and then crispness that, for instance, our managers come out with at that kind of level or other companies that, that produce similar stuff. Um, and then you've got to spend the ages cleaning them up, taking off supports, everything like that, which is what you would be doing if you had just bought some miniatures and you were t- taking them off a sprue and you were putting them together. So I, I don't see it particularly as being that much uh, of a threat at the moment, not with the, the quality level that you can buy in ha- you know, at home. Yeah, and, and uh, what about you, Kirsten? Maybe eventually it might get that way, but yeah, and mm. I, I agree with Ricky, to be honest. I mean, to get to get a 3D printer that would produce models at the kind of quality that we do, you'd have to spend probably tens of thousands of pounds. Most people can't afford that. You need space, you need ventilation. It's it's really a lot harder than, than people think. You know, you, you can go 
and you can buy a printer for a couple of hundred pounds and you can print off something that's okay. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. So you can get some nice, interesting ideas, but you can't really challenge the quality of the people who do it professionally, you know, not not to blow our own trumpet or anything, but, but for any any company producing decent resin, you can't easily match that at home. So, yeah, I, I think it's good that it's bringing in some alternative models and sculpts and people are being able to play around with it themselves. And, uh, you know, I think that's honestly a, a really good thing. But a lot of people don't understand how much work goes in behind the scenes, like the process that Ricky has described from getting the renders to cleaning up the masters and so on. Somebody said to me recently that if they had a chunk of money, they'd get a 3D printer for themselves and they'd hire a sculptor. And I said, well, I don't think you really understand how much any of those things will cost you. <laughs> you know, it's really not that simple. Yeah, and look, yeah, I, can, the- I completely agree. I've never seen a 3D printed model that that compares to something that you guys produce even even closely. We have seen, haven't we? People like uh, companies like Raging Heroes are are making STLs available for for the public to print. And I, one of the things we talked about in our resin three D printing episode, you know, was exactly what you're saying in terms of both quality and faff. You know, it, it is a big deal. Uh, you can get decent miniatures out of it, but it just takes a lot of time, and people don't quite appreciate the safety aspect in terms of ventilation. Uh, I think you know there'll always be a hobbyist market, but until that technology is more accessible, you know, I, I think it's it's two things: it's one, it's quality, and two, it's volume, isn't it? Really, um, as well as all those safety aspects. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've got a team of people who who produce our stuff, and you know, as as Ricky said, if you want to turn turn something into resin from the start, that can take several weeks. If you set a 3D print running, it might take you eight hours and it might fail at, you know, the seven and a half hour mark. And then you've lost most of the day. And that's something that we've already factored into our production. But you can't just do that at home when, you know, people have jobs and need to sleep and, you know, mundane, boring things like that. So... It's really, it, it is a complicated process. I mean, I'd love to get one of those plastic filament printers for doing things like D&D terrain. But even in my, you know, two-bed house here, it's, well, where have I got the space for it? Where can I set it up? They're noisy. Where will I put it that the neighbours won't shout at me? You know, it, it really is, uh, it's more complicated than people perhaps imagine. Yeah, I, I agree there. So moving on, what is your favourite Mantic resin miniature that you've made for each of you? Maybe start with you, Ricky. Oh, that's a question. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I really do like the Frost Giant, if I have to be honest. I know it's not entirely resin, although I do have an entirely resin version of my own. Um I think I, I really like that. It was such a challenge to make that. 
Um, but I really do like the end results on it as well. Mm. And how about you, Kirsten? That, that is tricky. The, the Abbess is one of my absolute favorites. Um, there's everything about that. As I mentioned previously, like there's just that slight tilt of the hips that conveys so much character. The pose is amazing. Other than that, it tends to actually be components rather than completed pieces. Uh, the slasher tail, I think, is phenomenal. Just that wonderful sort of crocodilian detail in the scales and everything. Um, Hellboy's fist, I actually love. All the little cracks and everything that have come out perfectly in the resin. I just love seeing that. Every time we cast a Hellboy, I think, yeah, that's that piece is really amazing. Yeah, right. That, I find that really interesting that you like those pieces. But I guess when you're working with it that closely that, that you would. Uh, I've got an extra question for you, Ricky. With Mantic expanding and... Uh, looking at getting bigger, you know, and production's increasing. If we had any aspiring resin casters out there, what kind of skills do you need to be a resin caster and what kind of training? All training would be provided if we, if you were ever to come from work for Mantic, for instance. Um, but a, a, a core skill set would be a fine eye for detail. You do have to pay attention to what you're doing. But then it's also quite a manual physical job at the same time. So you've got to be good with really fine detail stuff, but then you've also got to be good with the, the manual side of stuff as well, because it is a bit of a, a, a strenuous job at times as well. Okay, and manual, I'm guessing, is in lots of lifting and things, but also just lots of time on your feet, I'm guessing. It is lots of time on your feet. You have to keep up with the process. Uh, um, stripping molds themselves uh, it is quite a, a, a physical process. Uh, opening them up, uh, removing the pieces. It's not um, because the moulds don't actually come apart in half like you would do with a metal mould or something like that. They're actually solid blocks with the pieces inserted into them, um, just with release cuts. So it can be quite uh, laborious to try and get them out. Um, so it, it can be quite taxing on you if you've been doing that for an entire day. Is there anything else you would like to tell us about the process that we that we haven't covered so far? I don't know. When are you... When, when are you um cracking on with the resins for the two-player starter set because uh, I need my Ratkin uh, Warlock chap. <laughs> Just uh, quite keen to get him on the table, if that's okay. It is mostly finished. Okay, yeah, you know, if any preview preview copies to uh, local... Uh, move on, it's fine. I'll pull your head in, mate. You've already got plastics from Ratkin sent to you. Send me I something... Fr- send send something. to go with them. Send something to Come Australia. On. Please. <laughs> Australia. It'll arrive there in uh, 2021. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'll pay you, for you postage. <laughs> <laughs> Kirsten, did you have anything uh, that you th- thought we- would be good for us to know about? It's tricky. Um, I mean, the, the casting process, the resin is a two-part 50-50 liquid mix. So it, it all gets hand-mixed, hand-poured. Um, you know, it, it's our, our own artisanal in-house resin uh beyond that i mean anyone can come down and and see the process at least in non-covid times when we're allowed to remember that other humans exist Uh, yeah i think that's been a bit of an eye-opener for me about just how 
how much labor is involved in the whole process. So I think that's that's really good to know. I mean, there's always people, no matter what company you're at or, you know, what kind of uh, models you produce, I think people always come back to mentioning price, right? But it's good to know. And I mean, I don't think Mantic is, you know, certainly compared to other companies, they're not the most expensive on the market, but it's nice to know the amount of labor that goes into it. And I think you said it, Ricky, you know, that's, that's really what you're paying for, isn't it? It's not the, it's not the, um, it's not the material you're paying for that, for that labor that goes into producing, you know, those perfect miniatures. Exactly, it, it is very labour intensive. So that's predominantly what you're you're paying for there. Um, I mean, it's labour in other ways as well. It's like um, a, a resin mould, like Justin was saying before, um, only lasts maybe thirty cycles, and then it needs replacing again. So there's more labour involved in creating a new mould uh, to make another another batch. Um, whereas with a metal mould, for instance, it may run 150. 200 cycles before it needs any replacement um and a steel injection mold they yeah they last a very long time um but they're also very expensive to create um so that's what kirsten was saying before where you can't really do a steel injection mold if you're just going to sell 500 you need to be selling thousands and thousands or you know tens of thousands to to um, justify um creating a steel injection mold um once you've made it though it it turns out very very quickly and you can it lasts for a very long time so that's where your 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 price comes down on that just because one thing will make lots and lots of copies whereas with us it's kind of it's less it's it's you know um in between those two for the quality is higher on the resin because you can get away with more complex pieces um but um it, it's labor intensive to constantly keep recreating the molds and the submasters and the masters to keep producing them. Yeah, I think the other the, the other thing that I would probably say is something that we brought up at, at the start in into the normal non-armored times. There is three of us in the department, and that is it. You know, and and we cast all the resin and all the metal that goes out globally. Um, so I had someone someone tagged me in a post on Twitter recently and he said, Oh, I, I got this resin miniature from Mantic. And I, I was wondering if you cast it. And I said, well, I, I cast all of them. <laughs> and that they, they kind of knew that in the head, but hadn't connected it to the reality. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's true of Mantic company wide. I think people often forget in terms of number of employees, how small you guys are, right? And but and how how actually impressive it is that the volume that you're you're pushing out for that small number of employees. Yes, it is a much much smaller building and much smaller staff than than people ever assume. And and the building that we're in, we actually only take up sort of half of the overall structure. You know, I arrived on my first day and I thought, wow, this this is a tiny building i was expecting something 10 times the size of this and then you realize oh it's not even this entire building we're in this corner of this building um okay so it's at this part of the show that we do any shout outs that you want to do if you want to draw attention to anything in particular uh ricky did you have anything you wanted to shout out uh i hadn't really considered it there's nothing that that, that springs to mind offhand i'm afraid okay um 
that's fine. And Kirsten, anything for you? I'd just like to say I think thanks to everybody at Mantic, first of all. it's It really is a lot of fun working there. It's a very silly atmosphere. Nobody takes themselves too seriously. There are, you know, occasional nerf darts flying around. <laughs> and when when we are as busy as we are, having people around for a bit of a laugh and a joke makes a big difference. And thank you to everybody who buys our stuff. We get a lot of uh, amazing comments from people in the groups. You know, the, the fanatics communities are by and large very, very positive, just nice places to hang out. And when we are running these double shifts, you know, I we finish it sort of 10 o'clock at night and come home in the cold and the dark. It's really nice to see a post from somebody who has built a resin model and really enjoyed it. But it, it genuinely does make a big difference to us. So thank you to everybody. Okay. And what about you, Stephen? Me? You. Um, no, I just want to, want to, you know, thank, thank you guys for coming on. We really, really enjoyed the chat. It's really nice to see behind the curtain a little bit. I know people who've been lucky enough to go to Mantic and go and see resin being cast and go and see some of that stuff. But knowing what goes into it is really interesting. It's, it's nice to hear some, some different voices from, you know, boring old Rob Berman. Heard him too many times, isn't it? Hey. But uh, I love you, Rob. But uh, yeah, really, thank you guys for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The only shout out I've got is just keep up with our hobby hobby challenge on the Countercharge Facebook page. If you listen to Countercharge and you're not a member of our Facebook group, well, come and join us. Uh, Lots of good hobby chat happens on there, and that's where we post everything first that we're doing. So please, you know, like the page and, and join the community. That's going to do us tonight. And until next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.